0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Maggie Dent is one of Australia's most trusted and beloved parenting educators. She's the author of parenting books and also the host of the ABC podcast Parental as Anything. Over the years, Maggie's gained a particular reputation for her insights into the sometimes mysterious workings of boys. She's often heralded as a boy champion. And in a way, that's not surprising, given that Maggie had a special relationship with her dad, grew up on a farm with brothers, and is the mother to four sons. But something has changed in Maggie's life over recent years. She's become a grandmother to girls. And watching them, playing with them, listening to them, Maggie has found herself fascinated by the differences between girls and boys. She's been researching the particular things that parents, grandparents, all of us can do to support girls, all kinds of girls, in their early years and as they grow into their teens and adulthood. Her new book is Girlhood. Hi, Maggie. Welcome back to Conversations. Hi, Sarah. Tell me about these granddaughters
0: of yours. How many do you have? I have four and um, three little grandsons, so it's like this little Petri dish. I just just was fascinated. Even from the get-go at 18 months of age, there were things they were doing and asking me and remembering that (laughs) I hadn't seen before. So that did make me really curious. And then I guess as I was observing them, as they grew older then there's, wow, the giant leaps in awareness and also the things that troubled them, how desperately upset they could get over something that I thought was quite minor and how long it could last and that they don't forget it. Like once we accidentally tipped, you know, nanny fail, but Poppy was there as well, so he's partly to blame. We were taking um, the oldest one who was only 18 months at the time to a playground and the pram wheel caught on the edge of a little rock and she'd already unbuckled herself because she was so excited and she tipped out and landed on her head. Now, she still reminds us of that (laughs) and she's seven and a half. (laughs) (laughs) So these kind of things, like the memory
1: that you've been observing with your granddaughters, is that different from the sort of things you remember when your own sons were little?
0: Oh, totally. Look, I had one of mine when he was eight come and ask me where the socks were. Like (laughs) I'd had the same sock drawer for 15 years. So, And it was also like they are observing so much more deeply the goings-on around homes and things and they consciously think about something to how do I best get what I want? And I watched one of my, once again, she was 18 months of age and I saw her standing outside the apartment kitchen like, Deep in thought, and I'm looking, thinking, she is really deep in thought. I just don't always see that. Boys are quite more impulsive. And, um, and I watched her and then I noticed she then made a decision and walked over to her daddy to ask for the biscuit, even though mum's in the kitchen near the biscuit barrel. And I went, oh, she's worked out which one's right. Yeah. 18 months of age. That's when I started to think, hang on, there's a lot more going on <laughs> that I've obviously forgotten. Well, I suppose this is the other first-hand insight you have into the subject of girls, is it
1: you once, Maggie, too, were also a girl. How different is it being a little girl
0: now uh, compared to when you were growing up? What are the big changes? Oh, look, enormous, enormous. Not only has our knowledge around how to raise children to be healthy and to thrive has changed. So, you know, back in the very olden days, it was still very much fear-driven, control-driven, punishment-driven, and shame. Shame was a big part. And we know now that, you know, so many parents are aware now that's not always going to get you what you want. But I think also, I mean, I lived on a farm, Sarah, you remember that, I'm on a farm, so um, we didn't also have TV. So I I wasn't marinated in images or even cartoon programs that actually demonstrate relational aggression, Mm. I haven't got an iPad where I'm watching kids' YouTube showing how to put endless hours of makeup on for little ones. Right? So our girls are getting sexualised much earlier. Not only that, they seem to be much more intent on the competitive nature between girls. It's it's not good. This is what's increasing all those sad statistics for our teen girls.
1: So I guess it's a it's like most big social changes it's double edged isn't it. Yes. On one hand there's parents better aware about stepping back from shaming or the kind of mm. physical punishment and accepting that girls can be independent and strong and confident. But then there are the the negatives around what girls now are dealing with that, yeah. that wasn't the way in those earlier generations.
0: And yet the awareness of those unhelpful social norms doesn't seem to be changing the way that our that that our girls are still feeling them. And that that's exactly what I kept hearing, that girls are still being conditioned to be nice and they shouldn't be the energetic child running around the playground jumping out of trees. That's really still, that's a bit odd, that they shouldn't climb too high or they shouldn't be too loud. And um, the appearance stuff is enormous. It probably got more, and I think probably the Insta world has put more competition between women on how you look, So it must be, it just just filters down. I think appearance has become even more of a challenge for us to let our girls know that is not who they are or they're defined by it. Tell me more uh, about
1: what you were like as a little girl. And there's a photo of you, a family photo (laughs) from your youngest brother's christening.
0: (laughs) Okay, so I have a beautiful sister above me. You know, if you want a perfect daughter, she was it blonde cute curls, right? I had brown straight hair. She never made her fingernails. She was polite. She was gentle. She loved dresses. She loved helping out in the kitchen. She never swore. I was the reverse, right? And whether it's just because that space had been taken and I loved hanging out with my dad and I prefer to play with the boys. So, And so that photo that you're referring to, um, it's funny because when I really dig it out and look at it, I can remember it Immediately, the feelings I had at that moment. Look, they come into my body. I was extremely pissed off because my mum has made me not only wear a dress, she's put a bonnet on my head that I have thought is the re- most ridiculous thing I have ever seen in my life. Yeah, that's a pretty clear, pretty clear example of me being in opposition to anything. That was girl-like. So you were feeling
1: in opposition. Do you have memories of speaking out, of, of pushing back against some of those expectations of
0: you as a girl? Oh, totally. There was there was a number of them. And I, I remember one, one really vivid experience that um, was in a classroom. I was in year two, so not quite seven. And the teacher was shouting at the little girl who sat next to me, who I knew was not as brave as me. She was crying. Actually, she was sobbing. And I just thought, no, that's not okay. So I stood up and put my arms out and said, you need to stop doing that and being so mean because she's really upset. And the teacher just yelled at me to get under her desk and I stayed under that desk all day, her table. So that very thought that a girl of seven could have the guts to stand up for somebody else, I was punished for that a number of times as a little girl, you know, that I was too loud and that sometimes I shone a light on things that girls shouldn't be shining a light on, they should just be a bit more quiet. You say
1: that as a a kid, you found it easier to hang out with boys rather than
0: with girls. In what way? Why was that, do you think? Uh, I found girls really complicated. (laughs) I didn't kind of get the the um, I didn't get the looks that were going on. Like there was a lot of communication that happens with facial expressions, and I seem to have missed that download. And also, I didn't care about sitting around and chatting because I actually was a lot more like a boy physically, I had so much energy, so I didn't like sitting too much. so I was always running around and I got bored with girls' play. Tell me about the the research you refer to where <laughs> yes. a group
1: of little girls and a group of little boys are put in a room with a castle. Yeah.
0: How, how do they respond differently? So three little boys go into this castle. They all jump around either side, have a go, and then, ah, no, that's not very exciting, and race off to play by themselves. Then they send the three little girls in, and the little girls are just around this castle, and they are talking, and they're talking, um, working out the rules. And it's six minutes, and they're still working out the rules. It's 12 minutes <laughs> And I think it got to nearly 18 minutes before they decided. Now, that just does my head in. But what's interesting, I've had that, you know, I've had to coach parents who've got girls and boys and their families If the two little siblings go off to play. Quite often, about eight to ten minutes later, there'll be a scream because the the little brother's so sick of her working out rules, he just wants to play. Do you know what I mean? So... <laughs> Where, why? What? What is that complexity? Well,
1: how do parents or educators help girls navigate that kind of complexity? Because like you, that just sounds so exhausting to me. <laughs> but if there are girls who are really focused on having kind of social consensus, yes. how do we help them,
0: particularly young
1: girls in that? Oh, look, I think,
0: I think we've just got to let them have endless opportunities. You know, like that's why I love early childhood educators and I, I work with them a lot because they observe them all the time. And um, when you give girls lots of opportunities to play in and do that, they get better at doing it quicker. So it won't take 18 minutes, right? But we've also got to recognise that we've got to make sure that the quieter girls have an opportunity to contribute to the consensus of the organisation because it tends to be the girls like me that are a bit loud that often could possibly, in that word bossy, comes out, Right. We feel that we have a much better idea. And so those early conflicts, though, are how how girls work around it before they get to a (laughs) boardroom one day. And it's important, the way that you're talking
1: about it, Maggie, it's not the same as that mean girls cliche that gets willed out. It was just in the
0: most recent election. Look, it's really interesting to the friendship domains. You know, that's one of the biggest things that comes up every time, no matter where I am. Why is it so complicated for girls? And it's really driven by the tendency, and it's a biological tendency, to be honest, in females, and that is that tend and befriend is like part of our survival mechanisms if we're in a traditional kinship community and that if there's a threat to the community, first thing that females tend to do is look after the most vulnerable, so gather the children close and the elderly. But we need to have other women around us to help us do that, and that's where that, that befriending comes from. So those alliances are actually a survival mechanism. So one of the things we know that when it works well and when women are supporting each other, And anyone out there in a great friendship circle will know how profoundly important that is. They're the things that help you make sense of the world you know you've got someone who's got your back. But the most painful thing you can do to another girl or another woman is to exclude them and to say, you're not my friend. And it really impacts so deeply. It triggers all the brain circuitry, the disgust and the shame that comes up in us. And that's why it can be really tricky because they're doing this under you know, five and six as they're working it out. But if we don't help them coach it and understand that um, it, 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 it is a really big thing, but at the same time, can we coach you to know you can just say, okay, I don't want to play with you today either. I've got other friends or we talk to them about having good enough friends everywhere, not besties, or that you have friends in daycare, you have friends in your neighbourhood, you have friends in your family, have friends where you go to dance, that they're not in just one circle that they believe is life-threatening if I'm thrown out of it.
1: In the survey of, of 5,000 parents that you did for this book, I think it was concerns around physical appearance was the number one thing that, that parents
0: worry about when it comes to girls. Was that surprising to you? Yeah, I thought it would have been further down the list. But it, and, and then I suddenly re- recalled a couple of experiences that I'd already had with my granddaughters. And one was a birthday party where, and they're around, it was a three-year-old girl birthday party. And out of nowhere, there's this massive meltdown with two little girls. And I mean massive, like somebody's run over the dog that big. What it was, was two little girls have worn the same shoes. Oh, my God. Sparkly white little, and they were devastated, right? And you have to laugh, don't you, because... Fancy having Maggie Dent at your birthday party. I mean, really, they're looking at me <laughs> going, take the pressure. What do you reckon? And I'm going, I have no idea, no idea why that happened, right? But to them, in that moment, that was like they've stolen my, my appearance moment, right? Even though they had lovely dresses. And, and then not long after I saw the reverse, I saw another party where two little girls were so excited that they had the same shoes on. And I thought, oh, how the heck are you supposed to navigate that, right, other than whatever they're feeling is coming from somewhere kind of irrational, but it was also, do I want to be different or I have to be the same? But that can change as well. So I just wanted parents to know it is complex and that they're not failing and that some days you just let little girls just cry it out and then you know, do you want to take your shoes off or... But there are only three, (laughs) right? Three. It's probably even more complex for
1: mothers who have got their own anxieties around (sighs) appearance and how they're looking. It's not like we've evolved as adults to feel fine about the other mother wearing exactly the same shoes as we might be. So you're trying to parent in a way that maybe you haven't uh, solved those problems for yourself yet.
0: Oh, it's exactly what is happening. It's so funny, isn't it, that when I kind of wrote the book, I ended up going down all these rabbit holes of my own memories of those things. And when I've spoken to other women, that's exactly the thing that um, confuses us all. And, you know, it doesn't matter how much therapy, I've had a lot of therapy, but I still fall into those holes. So, I attack me. You know, as a little girl, and I ended up with incredible self-loathing and self-hatred of who I was. And I do remember as a teen I wore brown a lot so that I wasn't in competition with anyone. But, you know, when mum's dressing a little girl, mum's (laughs) making decisions about how she wants her daughter to look and, you know, there's nothing sinister about that. However, if your daughter is wanting to look a different way, where's her autonomy in choosing and choosing that. And I love it when I see that I call it the kind of badly dressed child turning up at childcare who has got on, you know, her dress back to front and dirt stains on her shirt and um, welly boots on the wrong feet. Because Mummy has allowed her to make her own choices and I think that's one of the conflicts that can really trigger us throughout life is that other people are telling me how I should look and yet culturally that is exactly what's happening with little girls who see endless photographs in shopping centres. Don't do don't talk about the sexualised ones of grown-ups. It's the little curls clothing is always a certain way, you know, and it's that challenge that I've had to really practise this, Sarah, and I bet you would have too, that when I meet a little girl who's dressed magically and beautifully or anything, I, I've got to stop myself because I want to comment.
1: And should we really not? Can we not say look at your
0: fabulous curls yes. or look at those... Brilliant yes, flares exactly.
1: that you're wearing. Or, I mean, oh, wow, look can how we much celebrate taller.
0: that as well. I think it's when we call them beautiful all the time, and we don't call boys beautiful. I think it's there's this line in the two that if a girl's waiting for approval and for you to say how beautiful she is, and she doesn't get it, she will be upset. But if I can connect with her by saying, oh, "Those shoes, do you reckon they'd make them my size? Do you reckon we could same shoes together?" Like I want to connect in another way that doesn't say that the only way you're going to get a sparkle in your heart is if someone says that you look beautiful with that dress on. What about when it
1: comes to physical capacity and strength? And I think we, we're conscious lots of parents now of trying to say, you know, look how high you can climb or look how fast you can run. But is there still pushback? Like what have you observed in playgrounds when when you're there with yeah. your granddaughters and they're
0: <laughs> living their best life up on the climbing frame? Oh, totally. So my oldest one um, swung herself out of a cot at 15 months of age with a uh, sleeping bag on. <laughs> and my son and daughter-in-law said, what do we do now? And I said, the cot's not it. I said, well, she's obviously got... Um, Upper body strength, right? And she still has. Oh my gosh, she could go right up a rope at gymnastics, just to the top, and they're all looking, going, "Oh my gosh!" So when she was about eighteen months of age, we took her into. Um, the, there's a climbing frame in the centre of Jarangong, and there she is, right up near the top, quite effortlessly, right? And she's not that. She's not really that big, and there are men, not women. It was the men saying, "Someone needs to get that girl down from there because she'll hurt herself." And you know, lovingly, I told them to back off. But I, I know that's exactly the thing that the energetic little girls um, who aren't wanting to do dress-ups in the corner are kind of seen as a l- little bit odd. I think we're shifting it because the football, women's football, women's soccer, thank goodness for Sam Kerr, I think, I think it's shifting but I do still think there's a sense that that's the domain, the physicality is still a domain of And then boys. if a little girl does hurt
1: herself in a playground... What kind of reactions does she get that might be different from her brothers or her classmates who are boys? And
0: look, this is so challenging because, you know, I work a lot with early childhood educators and they'll just, you know, and I, I challenge them all the time is what is the tone of your voice when a little girl falls over versus a little boy? Because the whole boys are tough stuff. You know I've been challenging that and I talked to you last time we had a program that they're actually not as tough as we think they are. So we often say, come on, mate, just jump up. You're all right. You know, we'll cheer a boy on. But a girl will often go, are you all right, sweetheart? Do you want, can I come and help you? Like, tending stuff. And, and the girl's actually probably wasn't hurt, now thinking, wow. Oh, I'm delicate. I'm yeah, fragile. Yeah, that's exactly. And that's how these, these social norms can be so hard for us to really push them aside. And that's why I wanted to shine a light on it, that we speak the same way. You talk about glimmers, a so girls' glimmers in building resilience. What does that mean? Okay, so anything that that builds your ability to cope with life and setbacks and disappointments and takes you to be courageous is a glimmer. It's a protective factor, right? We've all got stressors. We're going to have moments, you know, we've all had them. I've fallen over on stage myself. You know, I've dribbled things down my top just before I'm about to speak in front of 500 people and, When I put water on it to wipe it off, my nipples became (laughs) wrecked and it was just like a complete disaster. But I've got quite good at that. There's a drama teacher inside me. So Glimmer's a way that we can build these abilities for our girls so that when they fall over, are we from the get-go going, you know, are you okay? Let's brush that off and get back up. You know, we give them those messages. And I think also helping them to learn to fail well without attacking themselves again, you know, that... That ability to get back on the horse, and I was really blessed that I had such a good dad who, when I was about eight, he recognised that I can't run very fast and that sometimes it might feel yucky coming last, and it does. And he said to me one day, if it feels yucky, just wave at the crowd. <laughs> and so I did. I began waving at the crowd and I felt so much better. There were times I fell over because I waved so vigorously. <laughs> but I also noticed there's usually someone else who can't run fast. So then I began gathering my arms up with, so it was this beautiful sense of giving me a strategy, but he gave me that other message, Sarah, and I think this is what I want all little girls to kind of hold on to, that um, no matter what, if you've got no chance of winning or being the best in any area of your life, always turn up and have a go. And that have a go is one of the most significant things about building real resilience, mm-hmm. that you still turn up, you know, <laughs> you're way and too wave short at the and, crowd. And wave at the crowd <laughs> and have a smile on your face when you fall over and get back up because life is going to knock us down.
1: In the survey that that feeds into this book, Girlhood, parents told you that one of the most challenging things with raising girls is meltdowns and and tantrums. Is your advice the same for girls and boys when emotions go nuclear?
0: Very similar, except that their intensity (laughs) goes a lot longer, right? So often... Um, boys will go through that if you, you're still there to support them. Remember, not trying to shut it down, know that you're there. Quite often boys' physicality in those big motions comes out like movement, you know, kicking, screaming or yelling. Girls, yes, it can be the piercing yell, but it can last an hour. Like it can be way much more. And then it it can still be with them five hours later and it can be still with them the next day, you know, and that we have to recognise that it, that it's bigger and more intense and I think the second thing is that sometimes they have these big emotional responses to things that they have perceived incorrectly (laughs) and that's why I talk about really listening to what's underneath it later so that we can help them make sense of what it was you know and what I keep saying just let them have them Um, The second one is try not to, I say acknowledge it and and acknowledge they're having a tough time and that big feelings are inside you and it feels a bit yucky. Try not to tell them what you think they're feeling because seriously, they don't like that.
1: (laughs) They don't like that. No, they don't like that, do they? (laughs) When you're acknowledging, I think some...
0: Adults uh, struggle with
1: this. That doesn't mean that you're agreeing that the fact they've got the same shoes is worthy of this crisis or whatever the other problem might be. It's acknowledging the reality of their emotional
0: reaction. absolutely. You don't have to agree with the cause. No, absolutely do not have to agree in any way or try and rationalise it because they're little girls. They haven't got a prefrontal cortex. They get better at doing that. So what we're wanting them to do is... Absolutely be honest about it because so many of my generation, we were it was shut down. Don't be so dramatic. Go to your room to you stop crying, or I'll give you something to really cry about. And many of us struggle because if you block everything inside you, that means that later on in life it comes out even more intensely. And also let them be angry, please.
1: Well, let's talk about girls and anger, because I think the the meltdown that Australia had in response to Grace Tame
0: last yeah, year, exactly. not
1: smiling, yeah. indicates that we're still pretty freaked out by oh. women
0: being angry. A particularly older women, absolutely, was just absolutely the most unfeminine thing you can do is be angry. And so passive aggressive behaviour becomes a norm for women, which is even more complicated to work it out. And it's very complicated in a heterosexual relationship and I think sometimes um, when we tend to be angry um, or really upset, we know the limbic brain fires up and then we know the next centre in females is the word centre. So sometimes that needing to vent or say what they feel or work through it. So sometimes sitting next to a little girl, she just keeps saying why it's wrong and it's awful and and eventually she gets down to a place where it's not so awful and... Yeah, probably, yeah, I might have overreacted. But it, do you know what I mean? We need it's to give so, them that space to hear that.
1: And it's so different, isn't it? I just think on my own children's, mm. watching them, my daughter will want to talk or shout yes. or argue. My son <laughs> just wants to punch something. Yes. And, and it's it's, it's
0: the challenge as the parent is not to get into a debate yep. sometimes with that yeah. very verbal upset little girl. Or think they're doing something wrong. So in other words, the more that they dive into those places and be supported as little girls, what we do, it builds an emotional intelligence, which means we're not going to do that in you know our workplaces later, or hopefully when we become a mother of a daughter who does the same thing.
1: Well, that's where your uh, suggestion of the
0: parental pause yeah. is kind of crucial. Explain that for yeah, me. Because it just... doesn't come naturally. Well, no, it Maggie. doesn't. And that's, it's kind of what we know is when we get triggered we go into exactly the same flooded state with lots of cortisol and we can be um, very reactive instead of responding. So my my recommendation for a parental pause is for taking a couple of really big breaths and recognising this is a bit tricky for me. You know, bend your knees. I'm going to say that's really crazy, but I find that when we're really active, really our legs are locked out. So all the martial arts have bent knees. It helps us to stay grounded. Hand on the heart to remember we love the child who's just about driving us... <laughs> insane and to remind ourselves that our child's not being bad or naughty right now and what they need is a safe base and the safe base allows this all to go through like a glitter jar and when the glitter settles, we can move on to the next moment that they learn about living as humans with great big hearts and irrational emotions and feelings, particularly as girls.
1: Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations. Maggie aunts and uncles play a big part in your understanding of, of ways for a child to thrive. Tell me yeah. about your auntie, Una.
0: Yeah, look, I was really blessed. I lived on a farm and um, my dad's only sister lived on a farm about 10 k's away. And um, my auntie, look, just whenever you walked in their house, it was just full of life, noise, laughter. She had the most enormously loud laughter and she was big and huggy and there was always cake in the cake tins and bickies in the bicky barrel and she would greet everybody and I I was marinated in this warmth of this wonderful auntie figure in my life and, you know, my mum was very reserved and quiet and it was like she almost gave me permission to be who I was, you know, who was the louder one, not the quiet, well-behaved like my sister... And I, it wasn't actually till I was zoomed in to her funeral that I suddenly realised how much I owed her. Um, yeah, and mm. so I know she'll be upstairs laughing at everything I do wrong. And, <laughs> you know, so I wasn't even aware of how much she had influenced me.
1: I don't know if I read this in you, Maggie, or in, in someone else that... The way we speak to our children, particularly when they're upset or heightened, that tone is going to really shape their inner voice. So what kind of
0: tone did Auntie Una talk to you when you were upset? Just once again, she would always wrap you up. She had this... At the time she was very generous, She's probably a little bit bigger than me, but her bosoms would wrap me in this great (laughs) sense of warmth, right? She didn't even, we will be okay, we will get through this kind of thing, you know, we're country stock, you know. And I just felt so totally embraced in the reality of the moment, you know, and things went wrong on farms, you know. Dogs died and lambs died and, you know... um, what if you broke something or yeah, damaged nah, something just once again it's just to sweep up and move on you know it wasn't it wasn't that you have done something earth shattering and i think that was a that was just such a good message i think i've always you know not only that i think it was she involved you in things so you had to help cook or sweep up whatever she was doing you know and i think that's the other thing I think today's parents do too much for kids, I'm sorry, but you know, chores is a really good idea, being uncomfortable having to do things because that's what we do in a system. I I, I say that with great love, but they need to do more. (laughs) You you yourself
1: have been auntie to lots of nieces, both biological and not. Hmm. Talk to me about why those relationships are important for girls. What are they getting out from their aunt
0: that they don't get from their mum? Oh, and it's a It's a really biggie is that we've all got issues because we don't ever want to let down our mum and our dad. That's a core thing. We want to make them proud of us and it's it's damn hard work. Whereas that auntie figure, um, when they have your back, when they're the ones that like you when you're good and when you're not so good, they're the ones who keep reassuring you that don't worry about what you... It's, it's what's in your heart that matters, you know, and don't let anyone treat you like that. Just That's not okay, right? They keep coaching behind the scenes. Even though mum's saying it, <laughs> we stop listening to them. And also I think it's in the turbulent years, when you go into those tween and teen years, where everything just gets so much more intense and chaotic, having an auntie figure, well, the research is overwhelmingly strong that... Um, they're often the ones that we turn to that get us through. And I notice it's having someone who can hear you non-judgmentally as a girl and a tween. And I remember one day I was on bus duty at the school I was teaching and the bus was a bit late and there was one girl sort of standing by herself with her head down. And I thought, it mm, doesn't look good. Anyway, I went over and um, I said, why don't we sit on the steps? And we sort of stepped a bit further back from there and I just was available and I'm pretty good at getting them to talk. And um, she shared some stuff about how tough it was in her life and I just said, Look, you know, that's how we get stronger too, you know. I just want you to know if you would like me to support you, then I'm okay. Um, but I actually think you can do this. I think I just know that inside every girl is there's an incredible strength that sometimes you don't believe in, but I want you to believe in that. Anyway, um, that girl wasn't even in my classes and I saw her occasionally but she came up to me at the end of the year and she had said to me that that conversation, that um, she had actually been planning on ending her life because she couldn't live the way she was and she felt so invisible and unloved. But that one conversation was what changed her life and she ended up becoming a teacher. So... I want to say that girls remember stuff. and they, Yes, they'll remember when you say, you know, someone says they're fat or they're ugly, but they remember when someone says, I really believe in you. I can see you've got a natural ability or I think one day you'll be able to write a great book. They don't forget that either, but they need more of that in this world that says they're not okay.
1: When you say you're good at getting girls to talk, what are some of the ways you bring those hidden girls out of their shells?
0: I think sometimes it's sharing your own vulnerability. I think when they feel safe um, and, you know, I, I also know that kids share, like, around the classroom, around the school that, you know, that teacher's okay so they get permission like that. When I was counselling full-time, there were times I got um, messages from students to say um, so and is running away to Perth and they're getting on the afternoon bus Would you go catch them? And that happened a couple of times and it was girls. And when I've turned up and walked up to the bus stop and the relief on their face when somebody they trusted turned up and that's that, you know, that's the place I worry about, the screen world and the SMS world and the WhatsApp world and the Insta world is I think we miss some of the real stuff that makes them feel someone has my back because, you know, a lovely text message to a girl who you're caring about, that would do something good. But is that going to counteract all this stuff she's seeing online of of looking for approval um, through how she looks and with 15 filters, um, which isn't her anyway?
1: Temperament has a big role here as well, doesn't it? In whether a girl or a teenager is willing to open up or share. And I think one of the kind of interesting things about having more than one child is it it underlines your own limits (laughs) as a parent because where something might've worked with one, you think, aren't I an amazing parent? Look at this gorgeous, compliant, charming, pleasurable creature. And then you have a different child and you do the same things. And that child, let's just say, brings up different challenges. So talk to me about the different categories that you use, because I really think it helps you feel it's bigger than me and my parenting yeah. decisions. I'm dealing with someone who's emerged with a personality and with a temperament.
0: And it's, it's like if you can imagine every single child who turns up is a unique one-off, right? No parenting book's been written about them. And our job is to work out who they are, what they've come with. And epigenetics is just fascinating now that we know that things get handed down. I mean, even trauma can be handed down. So what we do know is that the um, temperament tendencies from, you know, the most confident, feisty rooster children, you know, um, you'll know that very soon because they're all over it. You know, they argue before they're verbal, you know, (laughs) they don't like sleeping and they're loud and they're energetic. And they have sensitive little lambs who are gentle and empathetic and understanding and like sleeping and you think, I'm a winner. No, (laughs) he's just got a different temperament. And while that we really don't want them stuck at either end, you know, we're aware that they're going to be a little bit slower to warm and that one there, you've got to be a little careful, make sure the boundaries are in place. And then I discovered over the top of that, there's the orchid and dandelion kind of influence and that is dandelions just grow anywhere, right? So they just cruise through life. They don't, you know, they just bounce over things, they seem to strive well They make you look like a really good parent. And then your you orchid... Oh, they are really sensitive. Um, you know, just when you think you've got it sorted, yeah, they don't like that. And you, yeah, oh, gee, they can be fussy eaters. They're, they're overdramatic about things that shouldn't be. And so when you get the blends, and I write a lot about the most challenging children are the, <laughs> the rooster who happens to be an orchid. So the big boisterous personality yeah, with a very strong with heart. this massive emotional sensitivity, especially to things like being jealous or embarrassed. They are hard on themselves. But they also can have too much energy around enthusiasm and just do your head in. Like, you try not to tell them their birthday's coming. (laughs) Because by the time it arrives, everyone's just done, right? Yeah, yeah, like 15 (laughs) different cake styles. And so, again, we need to work out how to help them, you know, manage the strengths within them and that there are strengths within orchids. Orchids are quite in in tuned and and pathetic. And quite often, (laughs) um, it took me years to understand that not only am I, you know, a rooster, I'm an orchid, but I'm also an introverted one, which is a weird thing because I can do confident things like even when I was at school, but then I actually really wanted to disappear and not be around anybody and I didn't want to be known. So it was, this comp- it was really confusing as a girl that I didn't want everyone to notice me, but I'd get up and get a job done right, or I'd be the leader that sorts something out or raise money for something or save something and then i just disappear in the background and yet i get really upset because I took everyone's feelings on, including the teacher in my classroom. I, and, you know, if they weren't well, I was taking their stuff on, my stuff on. And it's really tricky if you're one of those kids. As nanny to your
1: granddaughters, Maggie, what kind of games do you play with them? What kind of insight <laughs> do you get into the imaginative world of little girls? Oh, that
0: has been the most fascinating journey because my boys, so they were into He-Man and Superman and, you know, that was not complicated. <laughs> so the, the Let's Pretend stuff started quite early and, um, you know, the tea party and it had to be Earl Grey tea. You couldn't have, you know, English black and I had to have that. No, you can't have Nanny go and get the unicorns and I brought a pony and I got growled out because it's, it's not a party for, you. <laughs> it's only you know. And then one day um, during lockdown, my five-year-old granddaughter at the time wanted to play doctors and so um, we have a little foyer so she's got it all set up and she's found a few things for, to be a doctor. So she's opened up the door and called out, Maggie Dent, it's your turn. I'm <laughs> thinking she just, okay. So I came on in and sat down and she said to me, so have you got a headache and runny nose and sore throat? And I said, no. She said, good, you don't have the virus, <laughs> right? Nobody, yeah, anyway, and I'm going, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm lucky, isn't it? And then she said, so what's wrong? And I said, I've got a sore knee. And she said, okay. She looked at it and she said, I'll go and get your Elsa bandage. And so she put a bandaid on and said, can I have your green card?
1: (laughs) Your Medicare. Medicare
0: card. Oh my goodness. And then she went the other card to tap, tap. So she, I wasn't getting out of there free, trust me. Anyway, I've gone and I had to have another appointment that afternoon and I've come back in and she's reassessed me for COVID. I have you got, and I said, no. She said, good, you still don't have the virus and how's your knee? And I said, yeah, it's 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 not really any good, and she just said, well, "I think you probably have to go and see a different doctor." Oh. <laughs> Send you for She's a second fine. opinion. I know, second opinion, <laughs> right? And I and I know this is kind of what Bluey's showing us all, you know, on our fabulous, is that this imaginative play is how often little girls are making sense of the world around them, and making sense of the grown ups and how grown ups behave. And I know at times. Um, that they can set up like a mini classroom and, um, you know, and be the teacher that admonishes the child or something, which may have happened in their classroom. But instead of just leaving it there, that they go to the child who was upset and they console that child. So they're actually what didn't happen in that real situation, they've now made happen in the unbelievably sophisticated stuff going on in that imaginary world of our girls.
1: You did a visualisation with a little girl who shared
0: with you a sadness about her dad. Yeah, that was amazing. Such a sweet little girl. So quite often you think there must be a trauma that's making this, but that's how big girls' feelings are. Anyway, she she still wasn't, something was missing. And I said, ah, look, and I had a a magic wand that I often use because heck, magic, (laughs) magic. And I said to her... If I gave you my magic wand and you were able to go abracadabra and you could fix whatever was making you sad, do you reckon you'd like to try that? She said yes. So she picked up the wand and she just went abracadabra, abracadabra. I just wish my daddy would play with me sometimes. And, like, she had a loving dad. He just never played with her. Obviously, Bluey wasn't out then. (laughs) Um, And um, you can just see, you know, Mm. when they they get that information, it's just turned around instantly. And that little girl's life was turned around. So one little worry became the thing that really shaped her moods.
1: You tell a wonderful story about a dad who wanted to sing... Uh, songs to his little baby daughter but didn't know nursery rhymes, didn't know (laughs) children's songs. What did he sing to her instead?
0: (laughs) He was such a cool dude. Um, He had a ute, you know, he was a tradie kind of guy and he loved his little girl. So they just did ACDC all the time. From the get-go, that's all she had as a little girl. Anyway, he came up to me after this um, seminar. I did a dad seminar once in Perth and he came up to me and said, Maggie, I always felt really bad that I didn't know any nursery rhymes and that she just had ACDC, but I just thought I'd come and tell you, and his eyes had teared over Sarah, and he said, so my girl and I, we've just got back from Sydney and we've been to an ACDC concert <laughs> together. She's 19. <laughs> and and I just thought how blessed. You know, we think the world is sit down and play whatever, you little girl, look at that. He found a pathway. She'll never forget that. And you imagine one day, if, you know, he leaves this planet. She just... She's just going to have all this way of memories that are going to come back through that music. She'll always day. have a uh, jailbreak. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't wanna um, I don't want to shame anyone, Maggie, because I know that, especially when my kids are mm. a little, desperate times calls call for desperate measures. But it breaks my heart when you're describing the power of play and imagination, particularly with little girls. Mm. When I see little kids in prams with iPads or screens, mm. and that moment where they're getting to just take in the world or engage with reality around them, we just seem to be blocking off mm. all those opportunities
0: mm. more and more, just giving them that distraction. It does. It, it just breaks my heart. And I think at one point, you're exactly right, this is like it's a great distractor. But I'm going to say that every moment of distraction that's not about human relationships, face-to-face, word-to-word, has a cost. And I think the digital abandonment, is is an issue. And then when parents realise that, they do try and put their phones down a lot. And I'm going to say it's really annoying, you know, sometimes if you've got a toddler who's being a pain in the neck and that, you know, in the, in the trolley, and it's not always fun. I, I remind my oldest son of the day I had him in my trolley and, um, he was arguing he didn't want his normal apricot yoghurt. He wanted strawberry and we'd eaten strawberry before and he didn't like it so I knew it would be a waste of a kilo of yoghurt. So I put the apricot one in and turned around to get some milk and everyone went, <gasps> and I went, oh, and then I turned around and he'd just thrown it and it was like a shot put and it just went up everyone's legs and all over the fridge <laughs> and some of the staff in the <laughs> supermarket I used to teach so I felt like a ripe twat. But do you know what? There was this great moment again where... You know, it, it can be inconvenient and annoying at times, but that human connectedness is still the number one thing that helps our children become who they are and develops a sense that I have worth because this person gazes in my eyes or they talk to me or they smile and make funny faces. And, you know, there's, there's some great gifts in amongst it. Let's recognise that. But I think now that we're finding that we've got children turning up with the weakest gross and fine motor skills, inability to self-regulate or manage their feelings because I haven't had enough meltdowns. I know that sounds crazy, but they actually need them. Really important. Inability to initiate and sustain play. We've got a problem and I'm worried. I'm really worried that, you know, the way that young people are seeing how intimate relationships are from, you know, not only online and reality TV programs. Oh, wow. How are they going to be able to create a relationship around authentic Human intimacy, which can be complicated, even with people who are who haven't had that. You know, and I'm, I'm worried because we're raising humans, not digital. You know, devices.
1: All of this that you're encouraging with little girls, Maggie. How does it apply to when they become tweens and and teenagers? Does does it
0: shift what we need to prioritize as as girls grow up? Well, the first thing is the, the stronger the foundation in those first years. Uh, all of the things that we've been talking about. The healthier the inner critic is in the adolescent years, and we know that that gets really strong. We know that their emotions become more intense, and we know that there's a natural body dissatisfaction. Those things are normal. However, the hatred we're now hearing from girls towards themselves is an, is another whole level. So if we're giving them messages that you can be you, beautiful you, but not beautiful everyone else, or you can be, you know, your strengths are these things, so we're going to help you build those strengths inside you, whether it's, you know, running, whether it's playing music, whether it's whatever, then we give them a sense that they're not, you know, it's a turbulent journey. It is really stressful. The figures at the moment are really frightening that we have one in five of our teenage girls is actually classified as depression, not just sad. We know that COVID has really deeply impacted our girls. Um, Once again, we interrupted all sorts of rites of passages and journeys and, and opportunities to be together. Again, I say that they need significant adult allies. They need lighthouse figures and it doesn't always have to be an auntie. They need people who just know that it's turbulent. People who will, you know, pick everyone's kids up after sport and, you know, listen to all the stuff going on in the car because they forget you're driving the car. Um, for me, it was making sure I fed large numbers of boys often in my houses and, and it was noisy and chaotic. I just, I think we've got to be able to create opportunities for them to spend more real time together, whether fire pits, camping trips. I think they're starving to hang out with their own friends in environments that maybe aren't a screen.
1: How have you seen girls' relationships with their mums in particular change as they enter adolescence?
0: Oh, it's so tricky because I know there's so many mummies out there who have come to me when their daughters have pushed them away and just go, we had this lovely relationship, you know, and I just dreamed we'd be off having coffee, going shopping together and I'm going, oh, look, I know. And this is what happens. So what they have to do is they have to push us back. To find out who they are and they are biologically wired to spend, want to spend more time with friends and peers. Um, it, breaks, it can break your heart, but they still want you. Absolutely, still want you. I've read an analogy
1: of, of the mother and the father, parents being yep. like the edge of a swimming pool yep. that a teenager is going to kick away yep. from and then swim back and want to hold on to, yep. but kick. And sometimes that kick really hurts. Yeah, but does. they <laughs> need to do that kick
0: to get into the deeper water. And I also have to reassure them that they, they can be just amazing in their school environments teachers raving about them, and yet what you get coming in the door at the end of the day is a bit like the toddler. You know, there's nothing left. And if you're their safest person, they sometimes dump stuff on you. So you've just got to pretend like water off a duck's back and that I'm bigger than this and that my connection is bigger than this. And what we tend to find is kindness is probably that it's not easy, particularly for mums because we can lay awake all night because that sentence that she said just goes ruminating loops. And it's one of the challenges of being a female is we have these ruminating loops that we get stuck into that are often negative. And every time we go around the loop, we charge ourselves up with more feelings. And it's not easy. And I think girls tell themselves that, you know, there are times they do things and they can't love themselves so that they really need significant people who can say, I love you no matter what happens, no matter how lousy the choices you make. If you fail your exam, you crash the car, you need to be picked up from a party, that we have fierce, unconditional love. Mm. And one day you're going to be a growing up and this, we'll be able to laugh about this, but not yet.
1: You write about in the book that for you there was an effort to think that you had to yeah. be perfect, yeah. please everyone in order to get that validation and that, that approval and And you can succeed at that in a, in a certain way and then it can really bite
0: you on the bum. Uh. What
1: happened in your first semester yeah. away at university?
0: So I'd convinced myself because I'm a bigger girl so I was never going to be in the thin brigade and I wasn't into clothes so I was really a failed human. Um, and, you know... I'd had that message as a little girl that I was too much and all those things. So I felt I just wasn't enough, good enough and all that. Then I decided I was quite good at schoolwork. So I thought, I'm obviously smart. I've got something I can hang on to. So that's my thing. You know, I'm going to be smart. And I got to university. And um, that was a real challenge to go from the country to the city. And I had some pretty turbulent experiences. But I failed my first essay. In my entire life, I got a 45%, which technically nowadays is probably a pass, but in those days it was a fail. And it was an essay on the politics. And I remember getting it from my tutor. And I walked from the University of WA, where we were, over to St Catharines over the road. And on that journey back, in my mind, something snapped. And I told myself there was nothing about me that was worthwhile, that... There's nothing good about me and it's going to be permanent, you know. And I got to my room and um, without any planning, completely impulsively, I tried to swallow a bottle of pills because I did not want to live anymore. There was nothing about me that was worthwhile. And um, I was kind of lucky I hadn't been prepared because one of the tablets cracked on my tooth and it was sour and I vomited. And in that moment of a fetal position with snot and vomit and... I remember thinking, I I nearly died. And the sun shone in through the window, which is me in nature. I just felt I was held in a moment of something sacred that said, you weren't meant to die. But that experience changed me because I realised how vulnerable teenagers are. And so in the days that followed, I decided I'm not going to do journalism, I'm going to become a teacher I want to be able to help the kids who have that that experience and hide under a mask that thinks they have nothing worthwhile about them.
1: So powerful that it was that really painful yeah. place of vulnerability. Absolutely. Opened up your life's path for you. Totally.
0: Absolutely. And that's what's... I think it also gave me a vision that sometimes when I've worked with teenagers going through something really major, I keep saying there's a message underneath this. This is, This is like... Is it a wake-up call? Is it a direction shift? Is it giving you a chance to see something else in life? Um, And I never told anybody for years because, of course, that's another failure. And I ran women's retreats for years and it was one of those retreats that someone shared something they'd never shared with anyone else and I just felt I have to share my truth. Mm. And um, isn't that interesting how many females will never share a truth and yet the day they do, their life just feels completely different because people actually can respect you more for owning something that was really difficult. And that's why lived stories are so important and why, you know, I ended up becoming a counsellor instead of a teacher because I felt I know, I know that look and I know that desperation and I know there's a way I can help that, that young person find their own strengths and gifts.
1: Maggie, your live stories are just such a, such a gift to conversations. Thank you so much again for, for being our guest. Thank you for having me, Sarah. That was my conversation with Maggie Dent from last year, and Maggie's book is Girlhood. And there's a new season of Maggie's podcast, Parental as Anything, available now on the ABC Listen app. I'm Sarah Kanoski. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. If you like conversations about big stuff, it doesn't get much bigger than parenting. I'm Maggie Dance, author, parenting educator, and the queen of common sense parenting. Did you know I have an ABC podcast? Actually, it's an award-winning podcast. It's called Parental as Anything. We tackle those big parenting problems straight on, the big ones and the small ones, while giving lots of practical tips and common sense solutions along the way. So if you have tweens, teens, grandchildren, or little ones of your own, let me help you. Be the parent you really want to be. Well, at least some of the time. Find Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.